Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all the liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the second angels, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to great high mountain and showed me the holy city. Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God's radiance, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord, the God Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the Lamb is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Good morning, Covenant. It's good to see everyone. You know, uh, recently, providentially, I was a couple of weeks ago on vacation. I had sat down and was channel surfing a little bit, and I ran across a game show which I would normally not stop at, but for whatever reason I did. It was Family Feud, and uh, you know that program, right? And it wasn't any uh, episode of Family Feud, it was Celebrity Family Feud. It was two bands, right? The Five Seconds of Summer against the Chainsmokers. What a great name for a band, okay? I mean, I would go to that concert, the Chainsmokers. And you know, they have a video where they go face to face, head to head with one another. So now they go family feud against each other. And I, I look at it and I was gonna go by, but then the question came up and the question caught my attention. And you can see why it was providential because the question was, name something you hope someone hands you the minute you get to heaven. Yeah, the answers go down from there, okay? Uh, it was a jar of memories. Uh, one of them was, uh, uh, dude, I want the answers. And it's like, what? You know, the answers to everything. Uh, they, they did not get all three. So they passed it over to five seconds of summer who guessed the number one answer. And here was the answer from five seconds of summer, the coldest beer ever or alcohol, and that was the top answer, and the only remaining ones were a harp and directions to the restroom. Yeah, 
You know, we shouldn't, <laughs> we shouldn't, it shouldn't be all that surprising to us that the world uh, that we live in has a lot of confusion and envisions heaven in maybe an inaccurate way because within the church itself, those of us who are supposed to know better, this is a, often a common image and it reflects our own confusion about heaven and what eternity is going to be like, you know, that we're going to be there with harps on a, some kind of a diaper-like thing floating around on the, on the clouds doing our best, you know, Gandhi uh, meditation uh, imitation. That's not it at all. You know, we've looked at several uh, ideas over the last five weeks in this series of our future glory. And this morning we come to the last message in the series, and it's fitting that we come to the last book of the Bible, the last chapter or two of the Bible in the book of Revelation, which paints this incredible picture for us of heaven and what eternity is going to be like in our eternal home. And needless to say, it is very different than a car or the coldest beer ever, okay? And so from our text this morning, I want us to glean four gospel applications about our eternal home. The first one of which is this. One day, the entirety of creation will be radically and thoroughly restored. The passage opens up with then. In other words, after chapter 20, the judgment seat of Christ, the great white throne judgment has occurred. Those who were not found written in the Lamb's book of life are cast out. Those who know Christ are enter, enter into the kingdom. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now we touched on this last week when we were studying 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter, talking to these Christians in the churches of Asia Minor and modern-day Turkey, who were so confused about the second coming of Christ, false teachers had entered in and had convinced them that what they had been taught was wrong and that this life was all there is. And so in the midst of this deception... Peter speaks to them the truth of God's word, and he reminds them that Christ is going to return. And he asks this important question, how are we to live between now and then? And last week we dug into that some with the two words holiness and hasten, those two truths of living a holy life and actually hastening the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But in that passage where we talked about this, Peter wraps up with this same reference that we find in Revelation 1. According to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth on which righteousness dwells. So whether it's John in the book of Revelation or Peter in his epistles, Paul in his epistles, they are remarkably unified, saying the exact same thing about the future and the future of our earth. There will be a new earth, a new heaven. And the idea here behind a new earth is not complete annihilation or obliteration or destruction. The idea is purification and restoration of the current creation. We know this from the word new, the new heaven, new earth. Verse five, I'm making all things new. It comes from a Greek word, which means it's in the sense of what is old has become obsolete. 
should be replaced by what is new. In such a case, and this is important, the new is, as a rule, superior in kind to the old. In other words, it's not where the current earth just completely is obliterated and disappears and God hits the reset button and all new earth and all new universe is created. No, the idea here is that of restoration purification of cleansing of the earth that will occur. It's a newness in quality, newness in the nature of the world we live in. The nature of our existence is going to change. The restoration will affect the spiritual realm. So for another, in other words, when it talks about no more sea, this is important. This is referring to the spiritual realm of life. John, in the book of Revelation, if you read it carefully, you see all kinds of nastiness coming out of the sea, right? The beast, the false prophet, different things proceed out of the sea. Why is this? Because in the ancient world, including in the time that John was living for the Hebrews, and also in the Greek and Roman empires and that civil, Hellenistic civilization, the sea was seen as the, the origin, the place where evil and demonic forces and malevolent forces resided and from where they came from. And so when it says that there is no more sea, that's not saying that the future earth is not going to have water on it or have oceans and rivers and springs because later we see that there's rivers of life and springs of life that are in heaven. No, what it's referring to is this idea of spiritual restoration, the spiritual realm that is evil and is wicked and is destructive it will be removed and destroyed. No more sea. The end of sin. The end of evil. This restoration affects the spiritual realm. It affects the creation itself, the physical realm. You know, the, the prophet Isaiah, he has uh, several uh, chapters where he portrays and gives us information about what the eternal state is going to look like. One of my favorite chapters is in Isaiah chapter 11, where, where God, through Isaiah, talks about the Messiah. He says in verse 1 that he will proceed from the root of Jesse. The Messiah will come out of David's family, and then it speaks to his existence. That when he comes, the Messiah, with just the breath of his mouth, will destroy all the wicked. And then he will establish this new world through the power of his might. And the way he describes it's beautiful. One of these you will probably recognize. He says, on that day, the wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard will lie down with the baby goat. The calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion. And a little child will lead them all. And there's these pictures that he gives of how safe it is that children will actually play with cobras. And they can and stick their hands in, the, in a nest of serpents and they will not be bitten. They will not be harmed. Why? Because creation will have been changed. So all of you who hate snakes, there's coming a day where, oh no, okay, that's not the application, but you get the idea. The creation will have changed radically. And he concludes by saying, nothing will hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For as the waters filled the sea, so the earth will be filled with the people who know the Lord. And so this world, when it is restored, it's going to be restored drastically. It affects creation. It affects the, the spiritual realm. However, it also affects us at the most deepest, at the deepest levels that we have. 
And we see this in the second application of this passage, our deepest longings. When, when Jesus restores us and he re- resurrects us and he gives us new bodies, that one of the deepest things that he does for us is that he will satisfy our longings. All the longings that, that plague us now, that we have, that we can never quite seem to satisfy. Our deepest longings are going to be restored as Jesus thoroughly restores and changes us. He says in verse 2, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Let's think about this for just a moment, church. What is the deepest longing that we have in our lives? What do we want more than anything else? I would contend, and the scriptures would say, that our deepest longing is to know God, to see God, to commune with God, and to have fellowship and deep fellowship with God. And why is this our deepest longing? Because we were created like this. We were created yearning for this type of connection with God. And of course, humanity had it for a brief time until the fall in the Garden of Eden. And with that fall, this connection and communion with God was ruined. And ever since then, humans have been born with a deep sense of dissatisfaction, longing for something. And that something was God. And all of idolatries that we know in this world, no matter what form they may take, And whether it's addictions or materialism or or you name it, whatever the forms of the idolatries are, they are nothing more than us seeking to fill this deep need that we are created with, and we seek to fill it with the creation rather than the creator, and this is why idolatry is so much at the heart of every sin that we are involved with. Randy Alcorn wrote an excellent book on heaven. I recommend it to you. He goes into more depth on subjects and topics that you may have interest in that I haven't covered in this series. But concerning this longing that we have for God, this is what what he writes. Our longing for heaven is a longing for God, a longing that involves not only our inner beings, but our bodies as well. Being with God is the heart and soul of heaven. Every other heavenly pleasure will derive from and be secondary to his presence. Now read the last sentence aloud with me. God's greatest gift to us is and always will be himself. In the new heavens and the new earth, this longing is going to be satisfied. How do we know this? Verse 3, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. God is going to make his home with us. Church, question. What's another name for the home of God? Heaven, exactly. Heaven is God's home. So, God, he says, is going to bring heaven to a restored earth, a new heaven, and a new earth, and we, for the first time, will know and see God in the fullest sense and ability possible. How incredible. 
We will know God so well, we will be able to see and look into his face, the presence of God. You know, in the Old Testament, Moses wanted to see God. And God said, no man can look at me and what? Live. Why is this? Because we are fallen. And even those of us who are following Christ and we have his presence within us, we know there is still this remaining corruption of sin. Moses was a holy man, but that remaining corruption of sin meant that he could not look at the face of the presence of God and said, God says, I will let you see the very last part of my glory. And he walks by him and that little glimpse of just a little bit of the glory of God radically changes Moses' life. But there's coming a day, church, where we will be able to see God. You know, the scriptures tell us in chapter 22, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the lambs will be in it, in the city, the new Jerusalem, and his servants. In the context here, the servants are those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. His servants will worship him. And notice what verse 4 says. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. How is this possible? Because Jesus, in resurrecting us, he thoroughly, absolutely glorifies and transforms us into his image so that we are holy. And when we are in this state of holiness through this restoration, we can see and commune and know God at a level that is impossible until this coming day. Our deepest longing, I would contend, comes from this right here. But there are other longings that we have that are based upon this, aren't there? For example, we have built within us the, the longing for community, to be connected with others. All of our longings that we have are derived from that primary longing of knowing and being known by God. So other longings like community and being connected with other people, this derives from this creation and the way we've been created. You know, the Bible tells us that God says, let us, plural, go down and make man in our, plural, image. We've been made in the image of God. And part of the image of God is that this triune God, this Father, Son, Holy Spirit, this perfect Godhead has been in eternal communion and community with one another, perfect love, perfect fellowship for all of eternity. And we are created in that image, meaning Deep within us is hardwired this need for community. And the picture we're given here is that just like the community of the triune Godhead, we are going to be united with a massive, perfect community of people known as the New Jerusalem. This is coming our way, and this longing will be forever satisfied on the new heaven and new earth. This longing that we have within us right now for the end of death and the devastation of sin that longing that we have will be satisfied he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away you know i've I've been pastor here for 11 years now you have seen me just through the normal rhythms of life You've seen me lose a cousin to war. You've seen me lose my father, my mother, and just recently my brother. And and as I have pastored and come to love each and every one of you and know your stories, 
I can confidently say as I look across this audience, virtually everyone I see here in some way or another, except maybe for the young, have experienced the sting of death. And so we groan in anticipation for this benefit of our world's restoration, that death will be no more. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more disease, no more dev devastation, no more crime, no more wickedness, no more evil, no more death. Amen. This day is coming, and this is for us to hold on to with hope, knowing that this is the radical, thorough nature of the restoration that Jesus is going to bring upon our world Third application that we see this morning, our eternal home is located and centered on a restored new earth. He says in verse 5, Jesus, who's seated on the throne, says, Behold, I'm making all things new. In verse 11, the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride of the Lamb, the wife of the bride, the wife of the Lamb, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city coming down out of heaven from God. Now listen, there's a question here. We're not completely sure, and we don't know exactly how we should interpret these verses. There's a lot of symbolism in these verses. Does this mean that God has actually constructed a literal city like a cube that is 1,500 miles high by wide by deep that's going to descend to earth and you know, take up residence here on the earth in some way? Listen, that's not impossible. And maybe that's exactly what it's getting at. I don't know. There's a lot of symbolism there, but all of the symbolism does reflect and is communicating this thing that we can be sure of. You see, a city is not a city because of its buildings. A city is a city because of its what? People. And the focus here is on the people. And who are the people? The people in this city are those who come from the tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, who looked for their Messiah and trusted in the promises of God. Who's in this city? The people who come out of these 12 apostles, you and I, this new day, this new covenant. So whether it's the saints from the old covenant or saints from the new covenant, all focused in relying upon Jesus Christ, they have been formed into this perfect city this bride of Jesus Christ, the church. And this church radiates the glory of God with all of our problems, with all of the sin, with all of the corruption that remains in Jesus' bride. There's coming a day when it will all be removed and its radiance will be like the most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. And he goes on to describe his church. And what we would see from this passage is something that's very important that we need to recognize this morning and I think really confuses many Christians when it comes to the subject of heaven and eternity. What we need to understand from this passage is that eternity, our earthly home, heaven has a very strong earthiness to it. There is a strong physical dimension to our understanding of heaven. The picture here is not us going up to heaven for all of eternity. 
The picture here is that our heaven, our eternal home, comes down to a new restored earth. So we can accurately say that this statement is true. For all of eternity, followers of Jesus Christ, the bride, will live in heaven. That is a true statement. It is equally true to say, for all of eternity, the bride of Christ will live on a restored physical earth. Those two statements are equally true. Why? Because heaven comes to earth. We will live on a restored physical earth with restored, glorified, but physical bodies. That's where we spend eternity. Our eternal home is a new earth restored. We need to get this. And there's a lot of implications to this that we need to understand this morning. We, we need to look at the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve. We need to look at Jesus and his resurrected, glorified body. These are the templates that are given to us to help us understand, at least in some way, what we're going to be doing for all of eternity. I mean, are we going to be sitting on a cloud in a glorified diaper playing a harp? Or, because that doesn't sound like heaven to me, that kind of sounds like hell, right? I actually saw a comic strip this week where, uh, you know, two guys are in the other place, and uh, the caption says, I guess we should have expected something like this, and instead of harps, they have accordions. <laughs> so anyway, another one had bagpipes, so uh, anyway. <laughs> you know, no, it's, that's not it at all. And we can see from these passages and from these templates that we're given that when it comes to heaven, the very first thing we've got to recognize is that there's coming a day, catch this, where we're going to be reunited with all of our loved ones who have experienced the sting of death, and once again, we're going to be able to talk with them, fellowship with them, and get this, we're going to be able to put our arms around each other, and they aren't just going to go... There's somebody there that we know that we can hug and we can love and we can be reunited with. And I, for one, am looking forward to that day. I am looking forward to the fact that we're going to be reunited with our loved ones and they are physically someone that we know and can touch and interact with. They're not some ethereal spirit moaning, you know, uh, like the wind. And neither are we. We are people created in the image of God with flesh and bones that is now perfect and glorified by God. Amen. You know, Richard Baxter was probably the most preeminent uh, Puritan pastor, theologian of the, six, of the 1600s. And, and he was a deep thing. He wrote over 140 books, deep books. But on this subject of heaven, I appreciated what he wrote. He says, I know that Christ is all in all and that it is the presence of God that makes heaven to be heaven. But yet it, is much, it much sweetens the thoughts of that place to me that there are there such a multitude of my most dear and precious friends in Christ. We're going to be reunited with those that we love. We'll be able to hug and touch and talk. We'll be able to eat and drink, make new friendships because we have this innumerable number of people. We will laugh and we will sing and we will have fun and we will work. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's what everybody was thinking inside, sweetie. 
Okay. <laughs> uh, couldn't have timed that better, could you? <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> We're going to work. I mean, can you think about, I mean, think about what humanity was supposed to be here on earth, stewards of the earth. We were to fill the earth with the image of God. And what were we supposed to do? We were supposed to work, steward the earth, build civilizations and glorify God by that image being spread. Well, what's eternity going to be? This innumerable number, this crowd of people that God has brought together is going to fill the earth with the image of God. And I would contend we're going to go back to the garden. We're going to steward the earth. We're going to build civil. Can you imagine what kind of civilizations will be built by this crowd of innumerable crowd of people? And there's no divisions, there's no hatred, there's no ungodly competition and everything else that takes place. There's no power struggles. It's just people united in Christ with all of their God-given gifts and abilities working together on a planet. What would that be like? It's called paradise. I mean, think of the art that's going to be created. Think of the music and the beauty of the music that will be composed on the new earth for God's glory. And all of this that is taking place, it will be taking place in an environment where the unseen realm that is currently there will now be seen. The veil is going to be lifted. Job says, in Job chapter 19, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, my heart faints within me. Think about that, church, as we work and that veil that hides the unseen realm that you only get glimpses of throughout Scripture is now ripped away. The heavens and the earth all become new creation. And because of no sin and corruption, we can see the things that we cannot see, understand things in creation that even now we cannot understand. The rocks and the trees and the, uh, the earth itself cries out today in glory of God, but have you heard it? I haven't, but maybe one day we will. I mean, that new heaven and new earth, the, the song of the birds in the morning are going to take on a different quality as we begin to understand how those birds are worshiping and giving praise to their Creator. I was out on the ocean just the other day, and as I'm fishing, there's all these porpoises that normally I can't stand because they ruin your fishing, but there was this one little porpoise that stayed around my boat, kept trying to get my fish, and he was making all kinds of noise and racket, and as I was watching this thing, I thought to myself, what songs does he sing to the Creator? And one day, will I be able to hear that song on this new earth? No wonder eternity is going to be characterized by us spontaneously breaking out in worship to our God because everywhere we turn, we will see Him, we will know Him, we will be touched by Him, we will always be in His presence. Eternity. But there is a final application that we can't skip over this morning. The final application from this passage teaches us that only the people of God are going to enjoy this new heaven and this new earth. 
this heaven on earth. You know, verse 6 to 8 says, Jesus says to me, it's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. There is this aspect that we need to understand about eternity, that not all will enjoy it. You know, as I look at that list in verse 8, I see myself in several places. Apart from Jesus and his work in me, I'm all through verse 8. I'm not going to tell you which ones, but I'm there, and so are you. And if nothing else, all of us have to admit we're idolaters, seeking satisfaction in the creation rather than the creator. Because apart from Jesus Christ, we are sinful people. You know, the most important question in this passage is, where, am I, where do I fit? Am I one who's in the Lamb's book of life? Verse 27 says, Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. I would contend the most important question, the biggest way you must apply this passage, if you apply it no other way, is to look at yourself and ask the question, is my name written in the Lamb's book of life? Is my name written in the Lamb's book of life? The scriptures say that if we have turned to Christ, that living water, if we have been washed by him, if we've confessed our sins and allowed him to cleanse us, if we drink deeply at that well known as Jesus Christ, he gives us eternal life through him. And so if you have repented and turned to Christ and that experience of salvation is manifesting itself in your life through change, where you are following Christ and you're becoming more like Christ, you have every reason to say, yes, my name is written in the Lamb's book of life. But if you can't say, I've turned to Christ, I've confessed my sins, He is my Lord, He's my Savior, and it's manifesting itself in a life that is gradually changing to become more like Him. If you cannot say that, the best you can say is, I don't know. And the worst is, no. So is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? If it is, heaven awaits. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity to look at this passage of Scripture. I pray for all of us here this morning, especially though, Lord, the one who might say, I don't know, or the one who might have to just confess, no. Un they don't think their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Would you give them eyes that can see the courage at the close of the service to make their way to our counseling area, to speak with someone to have the scriptures opened up so that they can know you, Lord Jesus. They can drink deeply of that gift that you alone can give, eternal life.
Lord, we thank you that our future is assured, that we have waiting for us a new heaven, a new earth, not because of any goodness in us, but because of how incredibly good you are to us. You paid that payment of our sin on the cross. By trusting in you, we now have confidence that on that day we will not be ashamed before you at your coming. In your name we pray. Amen.